Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah, man. Praise the Lord. It is good. Is is good to be in the presence of God. I don't at all mean that the presence of God is here on Sundays and not out there during the week, because God is always present. But tuning into His presence, where we're aware of it and paying attention. It's something that I think we train ourselves to do in here and we strive to practice while we're out there. Does that make sense? It's just good to be in the presence of God. With all that we see going on in the world, (laughs) it's good to be reminded of how good God is. If you have your Bibles, you might open them with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to take a look at a uh, very familiar story. Uh, a parable of Jesus. We're in a series called Masterclass. And what we've largely been doing is studying the parables of Jesus verse by verse. And as we study them, we've seen that Jesus is really trying to raise the urgency level on us. He's trying to remind us that some things are really urgent. You might remember that we talked about the urgency of the voice of Jesus taking deeper root in my life, or the urgency of making sure that I see God right, because how I see Jesus changes and shapes how I see everything else. You might remember last week we said that there's urgent danger in the human tendency to embrace religion, but miss forgiveness and grace and the gospel. Today, I want to talk about an urgency that ensures that I understand how God really feels about runaways. Sometimes I'm the runaway. In fact, we've all been a runaway some point in our lives. But it's not just about us as runaways. It's about how God feels about folks that are running away now and how we treat them. So that said, I want you to just jump in with me to this parable, Luke chapter 15. Again, super familiar parable if we think about it. In fact, I would suggest that the parable of the prodigal son is the most familiar of all the parables. But if you were to ask the average American, what is it about, we'd only get half the story. And I'm in a truth in advertising I'm going to tell you today, today, I'm going to do the half that most of us get. (laughs) And there's just too much here to squeeze into one. I mean, I I got all day, so if you want me to, I can go ahead and give you next week's too and squeeze it into one, but but you're going to have to stay through second service, and then it's a fair point. It's a fair point. So today, we're going to get the first half, the story within the story of what is called the parable of the prodigal son. It starts truthfully in Luke 15, verse 1, where Jesus has tax collectors and sinners gathering around him, and there were Pharisees who were grumpily muttering under their breath that they couldn't believe, basically, that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. With no recognition at all that if he ate with them, that they were tax collectors, that they were sinners. Now, they may not have been tax collectors specifically, but they very much were sinners. And so Jesus tells three parables in quick succession. The first, the parable of the lost sheep, about a shepherd who searches and finds the one that was lost and the celebration that is thrown. Then the second about the parable of the lost coin, the woman who had 10 silver coins and she loses one. And you might remember, we preached on those parables weeks ago. We said that when I find something that's been lost, especially something important to me, it seems like a miracle. And indeed, when Jesus finds us, it is. Heaven celebrates when the lost get found. And the problem with a lot of religion in general is that religion has a tendency like these Pharisees to think, I don't want to celebrate when the lost get found because I'm not lost and I've already been found. Which is a wrong attitude, obviously. 
So Jesus continues in Luke 15, verse 11, to point out to these Pharisees where their flaws are. But he has to get to them. He has to tell the story within the story. So it goes like this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so oh, the father did that. He divided his property between them. Now, in that day and in this day and this time, that would be offensive. Dad, give me what you owe me. I want nothing to do with you. In that day and in that time, the disgrace of that was far, far worse. In a society that was heavily revolved around family, this son basically says, Dad, you and mom and my brother, however many brothers and sisters we've got, you're all dead to me. I care nothing about you. The only thing I care about is what you have to give me. And I want it now. And then I want nothing to do with you. That's heartbreaking. I don't want to rush past that too fast because I think you feel a little bit of the grief that the father was feeling. If you've ever had kids say something similar to you or maybe not say it but push you away, you know the grief that's there. So he divided his property between them and not Long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, this verse is actually where the word prodigal comes from. If I were to ask you what the word prodigal meant, and you knew nothing of English except this story, because let's be you know English, but, but where else in English do you know the word prodigal? Good root. Good root connection, yeah. All right, so prodigal in this case, I spent the vast majority of my life believing that prodigal meant the son who wanders away. Prodigal means the wandering. That's not at all what prodigal means. Prodigal means... Wasteful, extravagantly wasteful. And this is the verse that comes from. That the son took all he had and he squandered it in wild, wasteful living. He was extravagant in the ways he blew through everything he had inherited. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went, and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, and he sent, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. I don't know how you feel about pigs. You might think bacon. You might think Wilbur. Right? Cute pig. Sausage. Yeah, if you're Jewish, if you're Jewish, you're thinking, no way, no how. If pigs were the filthiest, thought to be the dirtiest, they were certainly, God had said, don't. He was sent to feed the pigs. And he longed to feed or to fill his, to feed himself, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. So think about how low he's gone, right? right? The low of telling dad, I don't care about you anymore. You and mom and your, my brother, you're dead to me. All I care about is what you owe me. Give, me. give me what you're supposed to give me by the law. Never mind that the law also says that I'm supposed to honor my father and mother. From the low of that to the low of the wild living, the brother later fills in a little bit of that wild living, right? Squandering with prostitutes. 
to the low of having nothing, now in a famine, now nothing to eat, now doing the job that every Jewish man would hate, despise, and not even able to feed himself with what he's feeding the pigs. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I will say to him, father, and now he's got a whole speech prepared here. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. Now, there is some indication to suggest that other similar versions of this story had been told in that day. Except in the different versions of the story, told primarily by the religious leaders, the Pharisees and those that he's really telling a lot of this to, the father went and found the son, and when he found the son, he told the son off, basically. And so people would have heard this story and thought, oh, I know this one. But Jesus tells it very differently. Remember, the son decides, he has a change of mind, he has a change of heart. He comes to his senses, he says, hey, dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him. And he kissed him. In fact, in the original language, it says basically that he kept on kissing him. We we would say like he showered him with kisses. The son that smells of pigs. The father's not afraid to run. The father's not afraid afraid to love. In fact, I think there are hints in the story that the father knew all along where the son was. And certainly it's clear he never stopped looking for the son to come home. So the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He's giving a speech, right? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He is about to say, make me like one of your hired servants. But the father interrupted. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, a sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And that's just the setup to the story that Jesus is really telling to the Pharisees, where the older brother comes along. And you probably know that, right? The brother comes along and he wants nothing to do with the celebration. He wants nothing to do with the younger brother. And if you're 100% honest with yourself, you sort of think he might have a point. Because the older brother says, look, I've been slaving away for you all these years. Which is a complete wrong misinterpretation of the relationship that he really has with the father. But I've been slaving away for you all these years. I've been out in the fields working. I've been doing the family business. And never once, you haven't even given me a goat. He's like, Dad, how dare you? My brother, actually, he won't say my brother. He later says to his fathers, this son of yours. He can't say my brother. This son of yours brought complete disgrace on you. I'm getting ahead of myself. This next week's sermon. (laughs) You might just note that (laughs) the older brother was bringing complete disgrace on the father by doing what he was doing. 
He completely misunderstood the heart of the father. He completely misunderstood how he was supposed to relate to his brother. But I want to make sure we don't miss this part of the story. I kind of think of this part of the story as the Billy Graham part of the story. Because Billy liked to tell this story in, in detail. So here's the one thing I want you to see today. Just this first half of the story. Again, we'll come to the religious stuff next week and the brother and the brother's wrong heart and all of that. But before we get there, I want you to see this today. The one thing that today is about, that dad never stops looking for me to come home. What did Jesus, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There, there were moments where, where, where Jesus would speak to God in, in, in very plain language, Abba. Father, there were many who would suggest that Abba is, is a term that, that babies could pronounce and learn, that it was, it was the term that might be the first name they used for dad, you know, Baba, Baba, Abba. So I'm going to refer to God as dad here. But I want to be cautious in doing that because Frankly, God exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we would understand that from the entirety of Scripture. And a lot of what I'm going to say today applies to Jesus and the Spirit as much as it applies to the Father. But I really want to zone in on the Father for the time we've got today. Because if I were to meet in my sin any of these three fellas, the prodigal son, the religious son, or the father. I sure hope I'm treated the way the father treats both sons, frankly. And in this case, I want you to see that dad never stops looking for me to come home. Dad always wants me to come home. Did you notice the part where it said, he said, hey, kill the fattened calf. Why had he been fattening the calf? What feast? Dad never stops looking for the son to come home. Dad never stops. In fact, I tend to think clearly this was a wealthy family, and I realize this is a um, this is a parable, which means it's a it's a made up story, if you will. But remember, we 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 do a lot of TV watching these days. We watch a lot of made up stuff and draw truth from it. They didn't have. They didn't have radio, they didn't have TV, they didn't have podcasts, they didn't have, they had stories. And Jesus tells this story, and I just imagine the story like, like the father probably had sent someone to go find the brother. The father probably knew exactly where the brother was and exactly how the brother was living, both when he was squandering his wealth and when he was in the bottom of his behavior. Dad never stops looking for his son to come home. Never stops waiting for me to come home. If you've been on the run and you're worried about what dad will think, this solves that. Dad's always looking to celebrate. When I come home. So I want to go back through it one more time. And I want to give you five surprising truths. Five surprises from a very familiar story. And they all revolve around dad. And as we do this, I think it's going to cause us to think a little bit about our own families. There's no way for it not to. It has me thinking a bit about what kind of son I've been to my parents it has me thinking a bit about what kind of father I've been to my kids. And don't, this isn't only for dads, right? What kind of daughter you've been, what kind of mom you've been. Let's see if we can connect some dots. Five surprises from a familiar story. Number one, dad loves me enough to let me make my choices. 
Dad loves me enough to let me make my choices. Here's where I'm getting at. This is in, actually into the depths of theology if you really want to think about it. This is that whole, is God sovereign or does man have free will? Is God sovereign? Yes. Do we have free will? Yes. Not everybody comes to that conclusion. Because it's hard to reconcile the two. And that's because we're looking at it in a very human kind of way. And I'm not going to solve that theological divide for you today. But I simply want to show you that the Father lets the Son make the choices he knows are poor choices. And that happens with us all the time. Dad loves me enough to let me make my choices. Right? There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And the father did. In spite of the grief, in spite of the break of heart, in spite of the pain that that would cause, he did. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country. He squandered his wealth in, in prodigal living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And he went and hired himself out to a citizen who sent him to the fields to feed his pigs. And he got so hungry, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does God ultimately achieve his purposes? Yes. Do we do our best to get in the way and undo that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, this weird thing happens when you raise your kids. When they're really little, you think you have more control than you really have. Like, hey guys, time to leave the park. Hey guys, time to pack up the stuff and head to the car. Hey guys, time to... And you notice you're always saying, hey, time to, hey, do this, hey, do that. We get so used to that when, when our kids get to be teenagers. And they begin to push back on, hey, let's do this and hey, let's do that. Then we go, it's like I've lost control. The inmates run the... The older my girls have gotten, the more I've recognized that I've never really had control. And I can want what I want for them all I want. They have to choose it. And so the Father gives us the ability to choose. And this won't solve the theological debate, but I, but I would just note for you, if the Father chose it for the Son... And so the son was tempted and wanted to leave, but the father could pull the strings and make the son stay and make the son love him and make the son obey. Would it really be love? Would it really be obedience? Not at all. So the father loves us enough to let us choose. And quite honestly, in a lot of our stories, we've often done what the Son has done. We've gone away. We've rebelled. We've treated God as though he is dead to us. We've squandered everything we've got on us. And we've chased everything the world offers looking for that <clears throat> happiness that never comes from what the world offers. Number two, dad loves me enough not only to let me make my choices, but dad loves me enough to let me learn from my mistakes. 
to let me learn from my mistakes. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, it's like he had to have a moment where he hit bottom. That's our vernacular these days. To wake up. It's almost like we're all so pig-headed. that it often takes bottom for us to come to our senses. What is it about us human beings that, that, that we, we have to experience the worst for us to make the turn? When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'll set out. I'll go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Make me like one of your hired servants. Don't recognize. He's not thinking he's going back to be the son. And dad has nothing of that talk when he returns home. The idea that he's going to come back and be a servant. And don't misunderstand that. Because we are sons and daughters who serve. But we do it from the heart that's right, from the father's heart, not from the religious son's heart, the I'm better than you servanthood, slaving away for dad and resenting dad for it, and not from the rebellious son's heart, where we're going, I don't deserve you, which is true, and I'll just serve, I won't be a son. Dad had nothing to do with that, but I will just hone in for you that dad absolutely lets the son learn from his behavior, from the consequences, which tells me again a bit about parenting. When we're raising our kids, it's a bit hard when they're baby babies to think about letting them learn from their consequences. But if we don't do that at some point, we've got three-year-olds that really do run everything when we give them everything they want, when we, when we refuse to discipline at all and we refuse to let there be natural consequences, we do damage. I'm sure that when you think about your own parenting, you think about how you were as a kid and your parents disciplining you. Or you think about your kids and you think about how you disciplined your kids. There are probably some regrets on both sides there. In fact, there may be hurt and trauma on one of those sides. But I want you to see that, <laughs> that deep down, it's love that lets the son learn from his mistake. That said, I think this gives us a beautiful picture of repentance. The word repent is a great religious word that we use at church and we tend not to use anywhere else in society. It literally means a couple of things. It means to turn around, change direction. Do you see that in the story? Hey, literally... Dad, I want nothing to do with you. He's going away from, as far as he can get away from dad. And when he comes to his senses, he says, I'll go back. Turns around. And it means to change your mind. Repentance means a change in thinking. That is literally what it's getting at when it says he came to his senses. He had an aha moment that was a change of mind for him. Why should I starve here when I could be fed at home? And I couldn't. I couldn't possibly think to ask dad to forgive me and take me back as a son and love me as a son, but maybe I could just work and be fed. So the son repents and he returns home. I think I've said something like this before, but we need to be honest about the prideful places in our heart. Because the prideful places in our hearts keep us stuck. And life transformation often happens when grace 
touches the hidden prideful place that's inside of me. I mean, think about it. For a while, pride kept him in the lowest place of his life, the most painful place of his life, the most shameful place in his life. He stayed there because pride wouldn't, for a while, let him come to his senses. And it's pride that often causes us on one hand to say, Dad, I want nothing to do with you. And it's pride on the other hand that would cause us to say, yeah, I don't think I can go back. Because if I go back, I don't want to hear the speech. If I go back, I don't want to see the look on Dad's face. If I go back, and so it's pride that keeps us away. And one more thought before we move forward. If you have a prodigal daughter or a prodigal son, I think it's worth noting some things that God did here. One, God felt the pain. The father felt the pain. And I know a lot of theology, a lot of theologians kind of wrestle with, does God really feel pain? I can't possibly read my Bible and really conclude that. The entire story of Christianity revolves around the Son of God hanging on a cross and dying. The idea that God would be immune to the pain of that minimizes what was really happening there. God understands the pain of a rebellious son and daughter. Notice that dad, I've suggested all along, I think dad had spies, right? I I think dad knew exactly where the son was, knew exactly how the son was living. I'm I'm, I'm putting me into the story and interpreting it that way. A little creative thought process, just, you know. I'm not trying to add to scripture and be clear about that. I would never say my thoughts are God's thoughts. But I think dad knew all along, what the son was doing, where the son was. Dad never stopped looking for the son to come home. But what dad didn't do was go crawl into the pig pen with the son. What dad did do was leave the door open and never stop looking. What dad did do is celebrate when at the furthest he could possibly see in the distance, he saw the sun and he was willing to celebrate so much that he ran. You remember the story, right? I think I've, he ran, which takes me to number three, third surprise in the story. Dad will shoulder the pain so that I can be welcomed home. Dad will shoulder the pain. Yeah, that's all right. We'll, we'll fix that for second service, Craig. Dad will shoulder the pain so that I, there we go. It's like magic. Dad will shoulder the pain so I can be welcomed home. What kind of reception did the younger brother get from the older brother? <laughs> Not a very good one. Cold shoulder. Cold shoulder, yeah. Yeah, because the the brother wasn't willing to shoulder any of the pain. In fact, in his mind, that was his fattened calf. Because everything left was his. The robe, the ring, all the stuff that dad gives to the younger son, he resents it because that was all his. So what does dad do? Dad takes the hem of his robe, and I know we don't live like they did back then, but you just have to picture it. Dad takes the hem of his robe, he pulls it up so he doesn't get tripped. That's what you would have to do if you're wearing a long robe. If you run in a robe and the robe gets ahead of you, and you, you know, you're going down the stairs, and next thing you know, you're at the bottom of the stairs with a black eye because, because you got caught in the robe. So they knew you don't, you don't run with the robe down, but here's what they also knew. You don't run in a robe. You don't show your legs. I mean, think about it. White, probably brown. Hairy legs. 
Like, I'm not here in short shorts for a reason. Exactly. Exactly. So here's this father who pulls it all up and he doesn't care what anybody else thinks. And here's the thing. He's willing to shoulder the shame to make sure the boy is welcomed home. The dad looks out and in the distance he sees his son maybe coming to town and, and he's got to get there before the rest of town does. Because the rest of town might say, whoa, fancy showing your face around here. The town might say, what are you doing back here? The town might say, your brother's going to kill you if you come back. And dad's got to get to him before all of that. And so dad pulls up the robe in com complete humiliation, takes on the shame that really is the son's shame. This should sound familiar because Jesus literally shouldered the shame and the sin and the pain when he hung on the cross. And dad did it in this story so the son could be welcomed home as a loved son. The son left commanding God or commanding dad, dad, give me. The son returns with a repentant spirit requesting, dad, would you be willing to make me like one of your higher, right? This is the speech. And dad shoulders the shame so the son can come home. And if you have been on the run, come home. How would dad feel? Come home. He ran to his son. Maybe one of the greatest truths of this whole story is that dad doesn't run away from runaways. And that's what runaways really want. You're dead to me. I want nothing to do with you. Dad never stops looking, and dad never stops pursuing but for that matter, dad never stops celebrating when we turn and come home. How beautiful is that? A real dad always wants the prodigal to come home. There's not the slightest hint of a lecture here or a ridicule. There's no guilt trip. Every once in a while, my daughters will say to me, Dad, you don't have to give me the speech. Like, I know. Come home. Would you come home? I had two more thoughts very quickly. Number four, Dad will forgive my sins and restore my identity as his child. Dad will forgive my sins and restore my identity as his child. Again, I, I realize I'm into the weeds here a bit, but, but the son is saying to dad, I'm not going to come home as your child. I'm going to come home as your servant, as your slave. And the dad had nothing to do with that. When he comes home, dad says, kill the fattened calf. Dad says, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Dad will do nothing but recognize him as his child because dad has always loved him as his child. And dad has always loved you as his child, as his son or his daughter. And we find our identity in all the things the world offers. And it all proves to be empty. And when we hit our lowest and we make the turn, when we have our aha moment, when we come to our senses, dad will do nothing less than welcome us home as his child or daughter. Why can't he? Because he shouldered the pain. 
right? Again, if I look at the cross, Jesus took everything I'm bringing to the equation, the sin, the shame, the pain, the brokenness, and out of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, I gain everything he has to give because of what the Son has done in this case. Everything the son left looking for, he found back at the father's house. Not just the ring and the robe and the, I actually think he probably got all of that when he left. He got a robe when he left. He already had a robe. He already had sandals. He already had a ring. He probably long ago sold those things off for his wild living. And when he's welcomed back home, there's another one for him. And these things represent his sonship. Not everybody in the family, at least not any of the servants, wore the ring, wore the sandals, wore the robe. The robe, rep robe represents the special place in the family. The ring represents the responsibility and the authority to do business in the name of the family. And the sandals, only the family had sandals. The son left looking for identity and affection, acceptance and approval. He left looking for the affirmation of the world, for the world to love him back. And he found all the things the world offers and <laughs> discovered them to be quite empty. And so we too have to discover them to be quite empty to come home. Father killed the fattened calf. I don't know about you, but I'm smelling brisket. Ribs, yeah. You know, some of us didn't have fathers that were like this father. And some of us weren't fathers that were like this father. And I'm going to, by extension, extend that the other direction too. Some of us didn't have mothers who have this heart. And some of us weren't mothers who have this kind of heart. What do we do with that? Because, quite honestly, we all have a little bit of stuff that's left over from our childhood days, don't we? For some of us, that stuff is significance. Significant, right? And for some of us, there's trauma there. For some of us, there's deep, deep pain there. I mean, the kind of pain where we've sat with counselors and, and tried to unpack it all and we're still unfolding the effects of that season on our life. And I think the best answer I have for any of that, because ultimately we're gonna end up asking, why am I the way I am? And why did my parents treat me the way they treat me? And let's be clear, no parents were perfect. Were you, right? No kids are perfect, no parents are perfect. We're all broken by sin. In some cases, our parents did the best they knew how to do given the way they were raised, given different, right? And frankly, we're always raised in a slightly different culture. The way change speeds up these days, the world my father grew up in is not the world my, grand, my kids have grown up in, and I have no grandkids yet. But they will grow up in a different world than my kids have grown up in. Does that, does that make sense? So I just want to leave us with one final thought. A dad in heaven is the best chance on earth of healing a parent wound. Dad in heaven is the best chance on earth of healing a father wound or a mother wound. Those wounds run deep. They affect our trust muscle, our ability to really trust other people deeply. Those wounds affect our understanding of what's appropriate and inappropriate, 
our sense of right and wrong, our sense of boundaries, our sense of good and bad. (laughs) It affects how we find our identity and the comparisons we make. It has to do with how we process our pain, how we process grief, how we process a lot of life. And if you have a parent wound, if there's trauma in play, I don't want to gloss over that, and I don't want to tell you something that sounds like, all you need is Jesus, and it will all be better. I know it's not that simple. But I do know this. God's in the healing business, and God's in the caring business, and God's in the loving business, and God's in the sustaining business, and God's in the life change business, and just because you were treated a certain way doesn't mean you have to pass that on to your kids, right? If there's ever a shot on earth of healing a parent wound, I've got to believe that my dad in heaven, that my father in heaven, our father in heaven, is the best chance of healing that. And the best thing I can do, the best thing you can do if that's you is to lean in. Lean in to the father's love. Lean in to the father's celebration. Lean in to what the father gives you. Lean into the way that the Father has shouldered the shame, the way Jesus has shouldered the shame. Louis Giglio, another, another pastor, you might have heard of him, wrote in a book recently that God is not a reflection of our earthly fathers. He's the perfection of our earthly fathers. If God scares you, because you have a father wound related to your father on earth. I want you to look into the eyes of Jesus long enough to recognize that our father in heaven is different. He is better. That he is exactly as a father is supposed to be. He's always looking, always looking for me to come home. So we always end our services with two prayers. And today we're going to say those two prayers and then we're going to sing another song in worship. Again, let me just remind you, this story is just the story within the story. It's the setup to the bigger part of the story. Next week, we'll dig into, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. But let's pause here long enough to make sure that we're absorbing all this is telling us. So I want to pray two prayers for us. The first, a prayer of salvation, and the second, a prayer of application. And if you need Jesus today, like you've never come to him, or you're like sitting here right now, you've had that aha moment, like come to my senses. You're watching online right now, and you like something, like a light bulb is going off, and you're like, I need this Jesus. He's done all the work. He's shouldered all the pain. They put him in a tomb. The world said good riddance to him. Easter Sunday morning, he was nowhere to be found because he's alive. Hundreds of witnesses attest to that. Maybe you just received Jesus. Pray with me like this. Dear Jesus, I don't deserve you. I've run and rebelled. And now I repent. I change my thinking. And I turn to you, Jesus. I ask you to forgive my sin. And I thank you that you died on the cross for it. I put my faith in you. 
I ask you to be my God. And since you're alive, please take over my life and adopt me as your child. Thank you for choosing me and loving me. Make me, make my heart like yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For the rest of us, I want to pray a prayer of application. And just to tease you slightly more about next week, please, please, like, come back. I sure hope as a church when prodigals walk through that door, that in this place, they meet the heart of the father long before they meet the older brother. If you need this applied to your soul today, would you pray this prayer of application with me, dear Jesus? Thank you for not running away from me when I run away from you. Thank you that you shouldered the pain literally so that I could be restored. Thank you that you never stop loving me and never stop looking for me. So Jesus, I just I return to you. And I ask you to give me the peace of an identity defined by you. And give me the strength to live daily in your love. Give me the grace of daily change that comes from my walk with you. And for whatever parent wounds may exist in my life, whatever parent wounds I may have caused in my kids' lives, I pray that you would do what you do best. That you would bring comfort, compassion, healing. Oh, bring healing, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. He is good. He is good. I'm so glad you're worshiping with us. I'd like to just remind you, again, on the way out, our offering boxes in the basket. In the back, our baskets are in the back for the communication cards. If I can serve you in some way, I pray for you in some way, let me know. I'll be outside right after the service.